accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the podcast. We're continuing our run through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and we are up to the episode that is called The Wire. It is the 22nd episode of the second season, aired first on May 8th, 1994. It was written by Robert Hewitt Wolf, directed by Kim Friedman. This is the first uh, female director that the series has ever had. And in this episode, Bashir tries to help when Garrick suffers painful headaches because of an implant in his brain. It's called The Wire. We're joined by Clay. Clay, how are you? Shit. <laughs> I was trying to think of a more iconic... Um, my favorite Wire <laughs> quote is actually... Uh, Deserve ain't got nothing to do with it, or deserving a shit to do with it, whatever. Um, but I can't remember what that character says. The uh, the girl who's Marlo, Marlon's, uh, Marlo's uh, number one lieutenant or something at the last season. Oh, yeah. I was going to try and figure out a way to work in the phrase. Uh, I was going to say something like, the Garrick's biggest problem is that he forgot that if you come at the king, you best not miss. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't know if that entirely made sense. So. <laughs> it sort of does. We're talking about the Star Trek episode, The Wire, which is unhelpfully very similarly named to a critically acclaimed HBO show. Um, this is a Garrick-centric episode. We learn a lot about Garrick. So we're going to play an audio clip. Me and Clay are going to come back, and we're going to break down The Wire. You mean when you had that shuttle shot down to stop those prisoners from escaping? I stopped them. I only wish that I had stopped them. You didn't. No, Doctor. My disgrace is worse than that. Unimaginably worse. What could you have possibly done worse than that? I let them go. It was the eve of the Kardashian withdrawal. Elam and I were interrogating five Bajorans. They were children, Doctor. None of them were older than 14 years old. They knew nothing. They lived in bombed-out rooms, scrounged for food on the streets. They were filthy and they stank. Well, the room was freezing cold. The air was like ice. And suddenly the whole exercise seemed utterly meaningless. All I wanted was a hot bath and a good meal. <laughs> I let them go. I gave them whatever Latin them I had in my pockets and opened the door and flung them back into the streets. Elam couldn't believe his eyes. He looked at me as if I were insane. You took pity on those children. There's nothing wrong with that. No! I was a fool! I should have completed my interrogation and turned them over to the troop for execution. But because I was chilly and my stomach was growling, I failed in my duty and destroyed everything I had worked for. And so they exiled you. That's right. And left me to live out my days with nothing to look forward to but having lunch with you. I'm sorry you feel that way. I thought you enjoyed my company. Oh, I did. And that's the worst part. I can't believe that I actually enjoyed eating mediocre food and staring into your smug, sanctimonious face. I hate this place. And I hate you. Okay, Garak. That's your prerogative. Now, I really think you should lie down. Get away from me! Garak, that's... <laughs> Very clear. So, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested to hear what you thought before I say anything about this episode, because I, I think that this one is an episode that's really open to a lot of perspectives, I think, about whether people like it or not. And it has a variety of opinions about whether or not it's good. Um, but why don't you lead us off here? Open up this one. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> I thought it was good, but uh, I th- felt a couple things. I felt um, while I liked the character stuff and the interaction between Bashir and, and uh, um, Garrick, I felt ultimately that this story was a little bit... Uh, this felt a bit like a filler episode. Like it, it fe- you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like the only real purpose of this episode was to introduce the concept of the obsidian order or whatever they're called. Yep. Um, and after that, the story that Garrick gets into, I thought started off good, but then just got so convoluted. And I, I was like, by, by the time he gives his last, bit of uh, uh, a confession there, which which hilariously Bashir says what I was thinking, which was like, um, you're going to tell me that I need to know the truth again? Yeah. Um, by the time he did that, I was like, I don't know. Like, what what is going on here? And then to have him at the end, it turns out that he's the... He's been lying, but, like, the lies, he doesn't know which ones are... Li- it just... I, at first, I was like, "So what? What was the point of all this?" And then on the, on the second hand, I was like, "Well, is that is that confusion part of the point?" Which I can kind of understand, but I don't know. It felt it felt ultimately like a, a fairly unsatisfying episode for me. Like I I thought it had good potential. It felt in some places like they were kind of doing like a reverse duet a little bit. Yeah. Um, but by the end, I was like, I don't even really know what the point of this was, aside from setting up the Obsidian Order, or, what, or was it the Obsidian Order? Obsidian Order, yeah, that's the yeah. like the Cardassian CIA, basically. Yeah, like by the end, I was like, so what? Once Garrick shows back up, and he's like, no, everything's fine, nothing happened to me, and uh, we're just gonna forget everything we talked about, basically. Yeah. Um. It it didn't. I didn't find it very fulfilling. Which so, I, I looked it up afterwards, and it's actually a very highly rated episode. It's like it, an eight-something, It is. I it's, was um, very surprised by. It is a couple of the reviewers that I read consider this to be like one of the top three episodes so far. Really? Yeah. And I what I think, I was kind of leading you into it because I think if you are familiar with this show and you're doing like a retroactive review of it, this is a very, very good episode. I think if you are new to the series or you are watching it for the first time, I think it's incredibly underwhelming in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an episode and it's a character that really work well on rewatch, I think. And it doesn't really make sense on your first time through. To me, your first time through is basically like um, Batman the Dark Knight where the Joker tells his origin story three different ways. and yeah. And you never you don't really get an ending to that story in Batman. Like if, if the movie just stopped after the third time he told the story about where he got his scars from and you're like, well, what was the point of that? Like, why did that happen? This is very similar to that in that you spend a whole 45 minutes with the character and then you end up at the end not really knowing if anything that happened was true or not. Mm-hmm. 
And you're right that it introduces the Obsidian Order, which is important. It introduces an Albertine, which is important. And it it does more than any previous episode it had ever done to flesh out the character of Garrick, who, despite the fact that he's only been in like two, maybe two or three episodes so far, is an extremely, extremely important supporting character as the show goes forward. Um, so I guess, I guess because I, I was watching it feeling similarly unsatisfied. It's, it's obviously a bottle show because it's basically Bashir and Garrick in a room together for 40 minutes. Right. And it doesn't really, it's interesting on a symbolic level more than it is an actual cut and dry, uh, episodic story level. And I'm wondering if, do you think that this episode suffers from being too much of world building at the expense of telling a single cohesive story? Um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think the story is, is not really too disjointed. Like, I, I think it is a fairly cohesive story. Sure. Do, do you think it's that just, the story has enough of a, a reason to be told, I guess, would be? That, that is a little bit more suspect for me, I think. Um, like, I, I get what they're doing for Garrick's character here, um... But I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm just the the point that they end up at at the end. I feel like Bashir hasn't really changed too much. Like the whole the whole situation feels like it just has come back to where it was before, and their relationship hasn't really changed that much. Even though Bashir kind of like calls him on it. Yep. Um, but sure I mean, knows a kinda, bit more at that, at that yeah, point. They yeah, they do kind of set that up at the beginning with the this the concept of the repetitive epic, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. It's uh, yeah, it, like I I guess yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really know how I feel about it. Because, um, so, so go yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean the. I guess the thing here is that you had mentioned in a previous episode that we um, you were wondering how much we actually know about the Cardassians. And mm-hmm. on uh, very importantly, I think this episode fleshes out the Cardassians quite a bit. Uh, they continue to sort of be the James Bond villain is how I describe them as the pleasant to your face while being brutal behind the scenes uh, right, personality. Right. And they are constant liars. The society itself is basically a fascist dictatorship uh, where we learned before in the Maquis that trials are predetermined. You know what the outcome is in a trial on Cardassia. We learn about the Obsidian Order, which is their version of the CIA, which is or the Gestapo, I guess would be a better analogy, where they are watching over their citizens. You never know to what degree this is actually true because most of the information you hear about the Obsidian Order is told from characters who kind of treat it like it's a legendary organization. Mm-hmm. And... You get a creeping sense into the fact that Deep Space Nine is very, very interested in fascist governments and fascist characters. Mm. Uh, Odo expresses a lot of admiration for the Obsidian Order in this episode. He is uh, illegally wiretapping Quark's Quark's bar, basically. Uh, He gets called out on it and he says it's for the security of the station and everything like that. The... And Albert Tane is, um, you know, sort of he's retired, but still involved in this government. He can sort of pull strings that allows Bashir to visit him in the first place at the very end. He 
I I I thought that was kind of interesting because isn't I feel like going to the he just went to the Cardassian homeworld, right? I I don't think it's clear. I think what he does is he goes he goes into Cardassian space, but Garrick before that had mentioned that he had retired to some colony. So I don't think he goes to the homeworld. Oh, okay. I think he goes I, to some other planet. Because I was gonna say I feel like Bashir just taking a ship to Cardassian, <laughs> Cardassian homeworld is kind of a big deal. <laughs> This is the uh, the first episode that calls it Cardassia Prime too, which becomes like the mm. name for it. But yeah, he does. He I think he just goes to he goes to some planet that's not Cardassia Prime. And I think the biggest turn in the episode is actually the end, where Bashir meets this guy in Alburn Tane, and Tane is Tane offers to help, but only because he wants Garrick to continue to suffer on Deep Space mm. Nine. And I think that maybe while the plot of the episode is not particularly interesting, Garrick's state of mind and Garrick's unhappiness at being on Deep Space Nine is something that the show had never gone into before. He's basically only allowed to be, to not go insane because he has this thing that pumps endorphins into his head when he gets into mm-hmm. an unpleasant situation. So him being on Deep Space Nine, in this episode, you get a sort of a real glimpse of his character, which is when the, the thing breaks down and he starts yelling at Bashir in the quarters and he's not being drugged up to be pleasant all the time. Right. And that's my favorite scene of the episode, followed by the Nalbern Tane stuff, where Tane admits that he just wants Garrick to suffer, and he will do anything that will prolong his life as long as, as he realizes he's never allowed to come back home to Cardassia. Yeah, I think, um, for me, watching it the first time, I just, I just felt like Bashir the whole episode like he was really voicing a lot of my thoughts about what was going on like especially at the end like as i was writing notes uh he said a line that i just like underlined uh where he says i forgive you for whatever it is that you did like it's just it's so um jumbled up that it's very hard to parse out like what he's even telling you yeah and why he's even doing it and I understand that, that that's probably part of it. And so on, I guess I can I can definitely see why on, on first view it might come off a little bit uh, underwhelming. But yeah, I mean, it's a good... I guess I guess this episode is really... It's it's more... It's just a character study more than anything else, really. Yeah, it is. Because um, even... I, I guess because the thing that was, was, was throwing me off at the end was like, well, what, I, I couldn't figure out why... Why Garrick was telling any of this stuff like why why does he keep lying about like is he is his goal to get the thing taken out of his head i i was and i is that part of the is that part of the point is that you're supposed to be confused as to what garrick's motivations are here because i because the thing is obviously fucking with his brain right well is that the- i assume I, I don't get the impression that he's being manipulated outside of the fact that it's making him happy, the little wire in his head or whatever. No, no, I, I, not manipulating him, but like it's, it's, it is actively deteriorating. And so it, it is killing him. Correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So is everything he's doing just for the purpose of getting Bashir to remove it? Or is he actually having a breakdown, which is causing him to like blur the line between what is true and what isn't and confession and lying? Or mm-hmm. is. Like, if it's just breaking down, why didn't he just go to Bashir and be like, yo, this thing's going to kill me. Can you help me? You know, it's it's I, I was a little bit I was a little bit gray on why he was acting the way he was acting outside of the fact that this thing is is breaking down and is fucking with his head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if that's it, that's fine. That's fine. I, I well, 
I, I guess how would I think about this? I, I think that what he's doing is he doesn't want to die. So that's his, I guess that's his like primary motivation, which isn't particularly character specific or anything, but he is, he wants to continue on. He wants to get home. And the thing that you mentioned, the, um, the, uh, the epic, the repetitive epic that they're talking about at the start of the story. Mm-hmm. So what that is, is uh, Garrick explains it as the finest literature that Cardassia has ever produced is a story where someone serves the state to their death they die and then they basically tell that story seven times over through seven generations of of people. It's just the same story Mm -hmm. over and over again. It is very propagandistic. It's very fascist. It's very much a, and uh, Garrick has said this before about how the state is the most important thing to Cardassians. Mm -hmm. And the episode is saying that Garrick is actually a good soldier for the Cardassians here. He is, he is, while he's been somewhat humanized from his, trip over to ds9 he constantly insults bashir's help as being smug federation values and stuff he has that scene where he's arguing with bashir and he says that um the worst part of our lunches together is that i kind of enjoyed it mm-hmm. and the the what he what they're saying here is that his cardassian programming mixed with his personality is just making it very difficult for him to not want to return home and to be frustrated with deep space not on some level but at the same time that he's learning how to be independent of home and sort of seeing seeing the cardassian government for what it is on some level it's with we watched that recent episode where he sort of had gotten to a back and forth with ducat about something and they you realize that they don't like each other mm-hmm. and i think that's really yet yeah, beyond the characterization of garrick always lies like that's just part of his character. He he doesn't tell the truth. And Tane says it in this episode. He'll whenever you could just say something simple, Garrick would lie or whatever that uh, quote is at the very end of it. So it, it sounds to me that you found it was more frustrating than anything. And me sort of knowing that the outcome is that this is all lies. It kind of relieves the 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 feeling of wondering where the episode is going on some level. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I, again I think it was I think it's a matter of watching it for the first time, you you are watching it from Bashir's point of view, which makes it very frustrating. Yes. Um, but thinking about it and and probably going back on it again, it's it's clearer that he is just he's having a massive crisis of conscience, so to speak. Yep. Um, Do you think that is, any of the Garrick stories that he tells are? true is it like a mixture of truth not a truth or is he just making things up whole cloth oh i think they have to be some true there's got to be some truth there otherwise what's the point yeah like there's there's no point in having him tell those stories and get so passionate about it just for them all to be lies i mean if you well it's it's just like even if they were all lies that doesn't make him a very interesting character yeah yeah so what all, all of his stories are basically him saying that he was doing something and this other character, Elam, is doing something the opposite and they kind of clashed with, with each other. Like To me, the the Garrick stories that he's telling are really just kind of weaving the potential reason for why he was exiled from Cardassia because he it seems clear that he did something, that he had some kind of crisis of uh, conscience at some point. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do what the Cardassian thing to do would be. And he kind of resents himself for doing it at the same time. Like he he cost himself his happiness 
even though he feels he did the right thing. And he has that, the best story is when he, he's getting to that angry argument. He talks about the Bajoran children that they were interrogating. And he, he let them go simply because he was hungry and he wanted to eat. It was not because he felt bad for them, but it was that moment of weakness from the Cardassian point of view that led him to uh, be exiled. Even if that's not the truth, it's just indicating he f- he fucked up somewhere and he's in con- he's in conflict with himself about where he went wrong and whether or not doing the thing that he did was the quote-unquote right thing to do at the time. Yeah, that story in particular is the one that I felt like is probably the most true. Uh, well... Mm, I would say maybe not necessarily the outcome of it, but the actual action that he took, I would say, is probably true. Yep. Um, same with the one about blowing up the ship. I would say that is probably also true. Um, whether or not he kills his friend or whatever. Uh, is it? That's that's. Is that what he said? It, it, his friend was, his quote-unquote friend was in the ship that he blows up in that first story, right? Yes, and his friend is just his first name. Right. Yeah. Um, whether that story is true, I would say probably some of that story is true. Even, I mean, the first I found I found the first name thing weird. Uh, oh really? Like, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was like, yeah. I don't know if I would say I was disappointed, but it's like D- Bashir is doing all this research and he doesn't even know the dude's first name. Yeah, that's I would have I would have changed that line to have been like that was his Obsidian Order code name. Or something. Yeah, or like his mother's name or something. Yeah, maybe his, yeah, something a little, yeah. just a little bit more obtuse instead of like this person, Richard, is that's actually just his first name. Right. Uh, yep. But yeah, it's it, it is a uh, a really interesting character study. Um, and especially, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I recognized it as as being important once we started the next one and he was in it again so quickly. Yeah. Uh, because I don't think I totally realized how much he was going to be showing up. Um, so the fact that he is a fairly recurring character makes it work, I think, much better than if it had just been some one-off. I think, yeah. you know, I think that's part of it, too, is at the end of it... Um, everything does go back to normal so quickly you're uh, talking about the bashir like when him and bashir are eating lunch yeah, or whatever they have yeah. that last last scene and and uh garrick's like ah no i don't know what you're talking about everything's fine could have been a lie could have been truth even the lies are truths, and sometimes the truths are lies or whatever yep and bashir is just like oh you um <laughs> like at that point that felt more like a tng kind of thing where it's like well we have to reset these characters at the end so we can, you know, don't have to deal with this next week. Um, so I guess I'm a little bit surprised that they don't have the, something linger there yeah. uh, or have the relationship change in some way. Uh, and maybe it does. I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure how they handle those two after this, but maybe they do change it a bit. I mean, I would have... I would have I w- written into that ending scene a little bit more of Bashir sort of dropping hints to Garrick that because he visited Tane, he knows something about him. Um, Garrick tends to respond well to new information against him anyway. He's never particularly caught off guard by accusations and people learning things uh, about him. Uh, that's part of his character. But I, I would have just had a 
uh, like you're saying, maybe just make Bashir a little bit more suspicious or unsure of what's yeah, going was, on at the end. I was just going to say, well, even even more so in the rest of the episode, honestly, because I know part of the thing is that he considers them friends, but Garrick is like, dude, we only see each other once a week. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done, et cetera, et cetera. But at no point does Bashir say, like, I think he might be kind of full of shit here. Like, there's there's no point where he doesn't just accept everything that he's saying is truth. Yeah. Until the end when he's told, yeah, you probably shouldn't accept everything he's saying is truth. So Bashir comes off kind of naive here. Interesting. Um, interesting, yeah. And I, th- I don't know. It might have been a little bit more interesting for me if Bashir had... It's tough because... Again, you're watching it for the first time. You're just kind of along for the ride, and they are kind of, they are kind of playing with your expectations a little bit because usually these episodes, much like the way they do in duet, um, it's all about getting the confession out of this guy who delivers a really intense monologue yeah, about yeah. the horrible thing that he's done, while the character whose name is in the credits just stands there and watches. And then at the end, they kind of go, wow, that was crazy. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> real life is complicated. And then something kind of ironic or uh, darkly ironic happens at the end. And you kind of, there's uh, everybody looks at each other. And then the music swells and they go to the credits. Um, so I think they're playing with your expect- expectations that it's going to play out like that. And subverting that, they're subverting it without Bashir really... Uh, engaging in what is being said, you know. Yeah, they um, they also do the grand speech in the middle of the episode, <laughs> as opposed to the end of it. Yeah, you know, right. Garrick and honestly, this- I thought you know up until I saw what they were doing, how they were purposely making it convoluted. When when they when he he does that like addendum what in the infirmary uh, or in sick bay when he's like, uh, you have to know the truth again. I was yeah. like, "Oh Jesus Christ! The, the, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta know when to George Costanza it and get out of there, you know." Yeah. Um, but uh, by the end, I was like, "Okay, so this is purposely supposed to be convoluted and, and kind of hard to follow intentionally." Uh, but yeah, on the first watch, you're just kind of like, "What is this? Is just keeps going." I, I, um, I think that the the Garrick in sick bay after he has his breakdown is the. Most obvious, we need Garrick to say something here to inspire Bashir to go off and find the truth. You know, like it at that point, I don't really understand why Garrick is talking anymore. And, that, mm-hmm. and he's kind of re- reverted back to his normal pleasant Garrickness as opposed to the angry Garrickness that would that to me feels more natural with his implant being removed, unless they're saying that he's got over it cold turkey or whatever. But that one felt. It, that that one I agree feels excessive. It's like it's unnecessary for Garrett to reveal something else at that point. It, it feels like it's it's poorly timed, and maybe Bashir should have flashed back to an earlier conversation that they had, and he realized that that's the the hint that Garrick was saying to go find Tane, because the the drive to find Tane is ostensibly about getting these proteins or whatever that uh, Bashir needs, but it's it's really just the episode needs you to meet this character more than anything. Right. And so he feels... hasn't shown up before? What's that? He hasn't shown up before? No, this is the first time okay. he's appeared, but he will be back in a bunch of episodes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's to me like I when I watched the I had to be reminded I was looking at like a write up of it and I was like, "Oh, he does. He actually goes for proteins and stuff because when you're watching it, it kind of just feels like he's going to go find the answer for the story. Like Bashir's going to find the answer for the episode and bring it back to the audience." Um 
Yeah, it seem it seems like it seems like his quest there is to figure out, you know, to find some sort of redemption for for Garrick or something, yep. which obviously doesn't happen. How to wrap up the story almost. It's <laughs> right, like it's right. it's just this is the this is the ultimate solution here. And he doesn't really even spend all that much time with him. Um it's funny. I was that actually you... surprised. I was actually surprised at the point where he goes off. I was like, oh, this is gonna keep going. There was like ten minutes left in the episode. I was surprised that they, I thought it was at that point it seemed like they were wrapping everything up, but Yeah. I would have actually fixed the pacing and maybe done I feel like the episode's kind of backloaded. I would have the the opening is kind of slow. The first half of the half of it, like I, until Garrick has his breakdown, I know that they're trying to build that up and everything. But I feel the pacing improves after that happens, and you meet Tane and all that stuff. But the the Garrick and Bashir thing is funny. Like we had mentioned in the previous episode about uh, whether or not you can see Bashir as sort of the Roddenberry esque viewpoint of the the universe um like he's the person that brings in the sort of you, you called it naive i wouldn't disagree that he's a little bit naive but he's the he's the eternal optimist he doesn't care what garrick has done you know he he's, right, he doesn't right. care that garrick might have killed hundreds of thousands of people or whatever he's he's just trying to help him in this situation that's a very tng aspect of it and um ds9 is always seen as it, it's constantly called the cynical star trek and well, I think that the, the like the the plot here is pretty dark in terms of what Garrick is up to. They always balance it out a little bit, and I think that that's Bashir's role, and that's why Bashir would be chosen as the character to play off of him a little bit here, because it, Bashir's point of view is this very Star Trekky take on what Garrick has done, and sort of trying to meet in the middle there between the two of them. Um, and while Bashir is still kind of a doofus at this point in the series, it's I you I guess you could argue Bashir grows a little bit more than Garrick does throughout the course of events here on some level. Yeah, I mean Garrick, you know, well, I guess it's up in the air, but there's no point where I get you know I I think that's maybe a little bit part of the problem too because it's like by the end he shows no change, but but. I guess he's not necessarily supposed to. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, part of his character is the fact that he's just brushing everything off and basically pretending, pretending like it never happened. Like it's like, it's like he and Bashir went out drinking and yeah. Garrett got shit faced <laughs> and just started the like, That's yeah, yeah. It just started telling all these like deep, deep, dark confessional stuff. And you're sitting, Bashir sitting there listening, going like, wow, this is really, this is really going to change the tenor of our friendship. And then tomorrow, it's just like, you know, nothing ever happened. Yeah. And you you still owe him $25 or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, th- that's interesting. I, I, uh, I don't, I sort of fall in the middle. I like the episode, but I don't think it's a great episode. I, I think yeah. that it's, I think that it's bottle nature really is problematic on some level because this is, it's an episode that's really built around telling and not showing you anything. Yeah. That's honestly, that's where it was getting me because by the time before I, before they kind of give you the turn at the end and, uh, you know, imply that everything he said is suspect, it felt to me like they just wanted to tell this one big story about, Garrick's background and so it was just like every few minutes you would get another monologue about his past 
Uh, which is why I think the the part where he says you need to know the truth again, I was like, you couldn't figure out a more organic way to finish the story. Like, it just feels like here's the beginning of the story. Now here's the middle of the story. Now we got to tell the end of the story. So it just felt like they were really ham-fisting their way into telling this this story about Garrick. Yeah. Um, and once you find out that there's a, you know, it's all kind of suspect, it kind of kind of changes the way you look at it but uh but yeah it, it felt it felt so much like they just wanted to tell you and the story as opposed to showing you anything about him but i think i think the interesting thing is that by him telling the story they are showing you his character because if he he's not telling stuff that's explicitly just exposition yeah because it's so gray and some of it's lies and some of it's probably truths. And regardless of whether or not it's true or false, he's still having this like mental breakdown. Yes. Um, so they are showing you a lot about him. Uh, but you're, it, you're certainly it's covered, you're, it's covered by by what seems like it's just telling you stuff. Yeah. The, the most truthful thing you learn about it is that he does not like being on the station. Like he's unhappy with his life at this point mm-hmm. like that you, that you, that is undeniably true because he's reacting most emotionally to that aspect of things he does he does mention uh, having uh, mediocre food and yeah. I was thinking about that and I was like well what wh- it's one of those things like would you trade would you trade replicator technology if the replicator food was just only okay like you <laughs> could you could you could create literally anything. You could create enough food to feed every single person on the planet, but it's just it's fine. Yes, it's right. like you order a steak and it's like it's a little bit too cooked. Yep. Or you you order like a, a, a turkey sandwich and the turkey's just like a little bit too dry. Every drink is a little too watery. It's just yeah. like every it's just slightly <laughs> unpleasant. You're just like oh, it's too much ice. No, it's you should, even even replicators can't get uh, can't get cappuccino exactly the way it should be. <laughs> It's like it's almost like well it depends on who programmed it right like if you bring someone in who's like who doesn't know how to cook and they just program everything in and they put their own uh, programmer stamp on everything it's like well you know this guy apparently wasn't very good at making uh, souffles yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it would probably be the ultimate experiment in like relative happiness like if you brought that to a starving region. There'd be immediate sense of happiness, but then everyone started realizing that the food wasn't particularly good. It would be like, all right, now happiness has been brought back down to its uh, you know, happiness is determined on your like level relative to whatever your baseline is, whatever the sign shows there. Yeah, yeah you uh, you you can have any you can have chocolate anytime you want, but it's always that like uh, penny bin bargain garbage chocolate that's yep. like the ones that the little tiny wrapped santa clauses that are like the size of your thumb and taste like plastic every marshmallow is the orange peanut marshmallow yeah that's all i had i had another have. technology uh, thought that i wanted to bring up because this is the first time this ever really occurred to me i don't know why it occurred to me in this episode never before but don't you think it's kind of funny how the communicator as a concept is is almost entirely used um not to talk to people, but to summon people for a face-to-face talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's basically a, it's like a more invasive beeper. Yes, yeah. Like you don't you don't see people because it's part of the thing. I think it was uh, it it was it, the scene was uh oh quark. Quark, uh, you know, radios to, I can't remember who it was, if it was uh, Bashir or somebody. 
and says, could you come down here and we have to talk about blah, 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 blah. Oh, and when Garrick's drunk, right? Yeah. He's like, all right, I'll be right there. It's like, so you didn't tell him what was happening. You just asked him. You called him, basically called him on the phone to say, could you? It's like when someone texts you and says, call me. Yeah, yeah. You know? Or yep. it's like imagine imagine uh, any store retail store where they you know how they all have like headsets in now so they can communicate with each other. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like instead of that they just have the old style where it's you know we're uh, top of the aisle three you know that kind of thing. It's ba- yep. they basically the communicator technology is as advanced as a uh, supermarket chain basically. There's nothing more annoying than the text that says "call me" either because it's like it only implies bad things have happened. Like you, yeah. <laughs> you, you I, I always have to tell Amy to just like you just got to give me a little bit of information just to let me know that everything is fine, and then we'll that, I'll be able and to call. also the voicemail. The voicemail that's just "call me back" is yep. is infuriating. <laughs> yeah, it's important enough that they left a voicemail, but not yes. important enough to tell you what's actually going on. Uh, the the, <laughs> the communicators. I think it's. Uh, you know, it's obviously they should just Can end you? every single. Go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, well, they should just end every sorry. single <laughs> thing with like a. Can you come down here so that the cameras can capture it? Basically, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's what it's for. It's to set up scenes. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you ghost people through communicator? Like, I wonder what the dating scene is like when you have communicator badges, where you can really like, if you could radio to literally anybody and you know they're going to hear it on the yeah. ship. Yeah, everyone, everyone, we had a, there was a funny one, an episode or two ago, like where, uh, it, it actually happens in, um, Whispers, the one with O'Brien as the replicant, mm-hmm. O'Bri- O'Brien pages like Kira or something and Kira answers and O'Brien's like, Hey, I, I need to get in this room. And then Cisco gets in over Kira's communicator and he's like, Hey, chief, get out of there. <laughs> so this you aren't you're never having a real private conversation. Someone can always just sort of hop onto the phone and tell you something that you don't want to hear. I mean, honestly, maybe that's is that the answer for the future because I mean, as technology and communication technology whether it's phones or texting or Twitter or, or whatever becomes more advanced and more public, which means there's more people looking at it and more even more people recording it is the answer to then turn back inside and only use that technology as a way to uh, 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 generate an analog conversation. Yeah. Well, I guess the metaphor here would be when Garrett gets drunk, right? He goes down to the bar and gets drunk and Bashir to sort of uh, satiate him or whatever. is like, let's go back to your quarters and drink alone. Um, so it's really, it's about pulling, mm-hmm. it's about pulling away from this giant bar scene, which is the communicator and just going somewhere where there's no technology and you can be a lot out. Um, we'll close this with, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of theorizing about the, um, homoeroticism of the relationship here between these two. Interesting. Andy Robinson said that he actually played, who plays Garrick said that he played Garrick in his first couple of appearances as though he was homosexual and the producers told him to tone it down. I'll be honest with you. Everything I see that guy in, I feel like he's playing it as he's kind of gay. Yep, yep. And I, I don't, I don't mean that as a, as a knock or anything. He's just got something about his attitude where he's always seems, to, even if he's yelling at someone, he seems to like have a glimmer of love behind his eyes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like even in Cobra, where he's the, you know, the tough cop. I mean, the, the tough chief trying to run down married Cobretti. Like there's something, there's something about it where he's like, you know, Cobra, you're okay. <laughs> He, he does have a very he has a very like effusive personality that yeah. comes across yeah he's, no he's he's great i he's he's really good
I, I do think that when you watch their episodes together, it does it doesn't strike me as something that I'm like immediately picking up on. But when someone tells you about it and you watch it, you're like, they do have a very uh, they do have a, like a very friendly relationship with each other in a way that it doesn't. It seems like it's more than friends on some level. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's it, maybe it's just the, the sort of the error error or something. I feel like more, a more modern production would sort of pick up on that. Discovery will definitely pick up on something like that. This is and a more the- this is a better gay relationship than Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they'll, let's they'll see. pick up on it, make a big deal out of it in the press, and then abandon it two episodes later. <laughs> we'll talk about Discovery in the next episode. So we're going to oh, wrap this fuck one up. Yes, we will. We're going to wrap this one up. Uh, I'm going to take a break. We'll play an audio clip. And me and Clay are going to read some patron thoughts, and then we'll give our final thoughts. Besides, you're the one who ordered him to put that implant in his head, aren't you? I never had to order Gary to do anything. That's what made him special. So you're saying that if you don't get the information, Garrick dies. That's it. Well, we can't allow that, can we? I'll see to it that all the necessary data is transferred to your station's computers. Thank you. Oh, don't thank me. I'm not doing Garrick any favors. He doesn't deserve a quick death. On the contrary, I want him to live a long, miserable life. I want him to grow old on that station surrounded by people who hate him knowing that he'll never come home again. What a lovely sentiment. And it's from the heart, I assure you. All right, everybody. So if you support the show on Patreon.com, you get to leave comments about upcoming episodes and they get read on the show. So we'll start going through these right now. Stephen Cobb writes, The Wire, twist on addiction. That is good to see. The headache scenes in the cold opening were a bit cringe-inducing and how obvious the pantomiming was. Okay, now act like you have a headache and make it obvious in a way that no real person actually has a headache. Good relationship building with Bashir and Garrick. As always, amazing performance by Garrick, Andy Robinson. I can't decide if Bashir is playing Bashir's naivete really well or really bad. Whatever the case, it works well with Garrick. Love the guest star Paul Dooley as Tane. He's so natural in the part and conveys the supreme comfort and confidence that you would expect of a powerful character to have. He's really one of the best guest stars on DS9 for its whole run. It's no wonder stories keep popping up that feature his character. Zam Nuclear Wessel writes The Wire. Everything to love about Garrick in a nutshell. Does the pastiche on the killing joke? And I think it actually surpasses it on the point of stories and lies being superior to the truth. Did you get any killing joke feelings from this, Clay? Uh, Talk about Batman killing joke for people who yeah. are unaware. Yeah. No, no. Well, I mean, except for that scene where uh, the flashback to where Garrick shoots Dax in the stomach and paralyzes him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, is that is that the killing joke, or is that yeah, that's, that's actually yeah, that's that one? the one okay. where, where uh, Batgirl gets shot? Um, I can see that. Uh, it's really just about the because that's the one of the first stories that had the Joker be a mystery about where he came from, right? Yeah, you know. So not to go off on a on a tangent about the killing joke, but uh, the question in the killing joke about whether or not the backstory you're getting is legitimate is has always been difficult for me because the Joker's not telling you that story. You know, Alan Moore, the writer is just showing you that story. So it's the Joker's not actively telling anybody his, his origin story, right. which means that I feel like the idea that what you're being shown is not actually what happened in some way is a little bit more suspect. Yeah, sure. Because like, who's lying to you in that situation? You know? Does the Joker uh, not end that story by... Doesn't he have a line or something that he's like, I like multiple choice 
options or something like does he does uh, the joker not acknowledge that what he so if he's not narrating it i guess i would i haven't read it in a while i don't know how he would wrap yeah, that it's line been a up bit for like me that. too yeah um the only the only thing that i really remember is that his whole his whole point of what he's doing in the story is uh to prove that and even the even the most righteous man is one bad one bad day away from turning into the Joker, basically. Yeah, right. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd I'd have to go back and read whatever dialogue there is between him and Batman in the last uh, the last fight or whatever. But yeah, I just yeah. I never got the impression that they were trying to pull one over on you on the uh, on the uh, legitimacy of that story. But maybe I'm completely wrong. Oh, uh, have you heard the theory that um, that uh, Batman actually kills the Joker at the end of that story? No, is that that, yeah, is that was a, something that's seen? It, yeah, yeah. I won't go into it, but if you're interested, look up. There's an interview that Kevin Smith did with Grant Morrison, who um, lays out exactly how he believes that Alan Moore actually very slyly has Batman break the Joker's neck at the end of the at the end of the the, the uh, comic. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. It's one of those things where it's like what you're reading into it is probably more than what is actually there. But it, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a fun alternate reading of it. Yeah, I'll have to uh, I'll have to check it out. I'll put the um. I'll get that link from you and put it in the description. Let's go to the next one. Chad Wiley, The Wire. Well, his best moments are still to come. This episode is where Garrick starts to cement his place as one of Star Trek's best characters. I love the constantly shifting backstory Garrick gives himself, which fits his character very well. And Tane does a great job of presenting an air of amicable menace. He's super friendly and helpful, but you just know he can make you and your whole family disappear if you felt like it. Great performances all around. I do like the Tane performance because he turns very quickly. He goes from the... Uh, friendly sort of host character to once Bashir has sort of annoyed him, he is uh, the the light switch really flicks and he becomes very sinister sounding. It's a good performance. Mm. Uh, Joint Mango says the wire Garrick Gummin. That was probably the best wire quote. Play, I think. <laughs> um, he says he's, he's just as hundred percent required viewing. Uh, let's see here. Anyone else? Russ Graham, The Wire, an underrated episode that sometimes you can flies. Skip season five, though. Season five just is really like an alternate, alternate <laughs> story, as far as I'm concerned. I, I like season it five. Was, eh, it has its moments, but like season four just wrapped everything up so well. Yeah. That season five, it's like McNulty's in a certain point where his character seems to have come full circle, but then in season five, he's just back to doing the same shit he was doing in the first season, and it yeah. felt like that with it. It felt like that all the all around, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, serial that serial killer plot was ridiculous. Yeah, that was probably the most outrageous story that the Wire ever got in. That felt sort of unnatural on some level, especially but. after season four, which was such like a down to earth, interesting. Uh, oh shit, was the season four was the stuff with the, the kids. teachers? Yeah, the, the kids. kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess some of the stuff they were doing with the newspaper in season five was that season five. That was five is the paper. That's where the whole he, he's playing the media uh, to get them to publish the story so that they get funding. For yeah, that some of that department. stuff was interesting, but that serial killer plot was mm, no. <laughs> a little over the top. Well, now we look at our news on a daily basis and we're like, maybe it isn't all that much over yeah, the top. Yeah, I know. I should go back and watch it. It probably seems quaint at this point. Russ Graham says, an underrated episode that sometimes flies under the radar despite some laying some major groundwork for one of Trek's most fascinating figures. Despite appearing in previous episodes, The Wire gives us our first thorough examination of Garrick, and the back and forth between him and Bashir establishes a direction for both characters in future episodes. The sense of mystery surrounding Garrick is heightened by the extent of his deceitful nature, while Bashir begins a gradual progression away from youthful naivete. 
There's a real opportunity here for Robinson to show his acting chops, and he doesn't let it go to waste. His expression of a broad range of extreme emotions is masterful. Looking back, this episode is a little rough around the edges, but it's still an impressive early showcase of what will become one of DS9's major strengths, its compelling characters. I give it a 4 out of 5, a personal favorite. And then... Matthew Ross, The Wire, the ultimate Kaiser Sose episode on Garrick, leaving you with more questions and answers and purposely frustrating. Garrick is his dependable, creepy self with the vulnerability of a wounded man. Bashir is finally getting to show his ability to emote and roll his eyes. I tell you they need TV or some Game Boys while hanging around. I gave, I guess Pulaski just uh, paced while Riker was in his clip show fever. The real question is why allow Bashir the keys to a runabout by himself? Mama, uh, man, Papa Sisko is going to be mad. Eric Johnson, The Wire is the start of why Garrick is one of my favorite DS9 characters. Garrick has been established before this episode and is shifty, untrustworthy, what's really the truth nature. But this episode puts much of uh, such a spotlight on him and shows how he survives in the world, eternally smiling on the outside while hurting on the inside and using lies to tell the truth. He's like no one else in Star Trek, so, he's always, so we always want to see him. And lastly... Kyle Barrett says, The Wire. Finally, an episode where Bashir isn't just a friend to O'Brien. So what does he get to do? Oh, just to be a friend of Garrick. When will Bashir get an episode about him? At some point in the show, he just seems to be a proxy character designed to help explore other more interesting characters. That's being said, I really love this episode. The ambiguity. next episode, too. Yeah, the ambiguity of Garrick's past. The twists and turns, and particularly Andrew Robinson's performance, make this one of my favorite episodes. Other than a slightly rushed ending, I'd say it's as close to perfect episode of television, objectively, and it makes great strides and bold storytelling DS9 will embrace. I thought the lighting sucked, so objectively, it's destroyed. That's true. It's, it, it didn't, Object, it didn't... Objectivity be damned. It didn't go across the board. Um, I'll go first, Clay. I have a hard time. I don't know if this is a three or four. I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give this a three. Because I think that the real, really bodily nature of this is kind of a problem with this episode on some level. It's an episode that fans can really get into. And maybe when we finish the series, if you were to ever some for some reason rewatch this one, you might see it a little bit differently than what you do now. But I think it's I think it's a very strong three. I think it's a very good episode. I just don't know how watchable and how on its own it can stand on some level so a three for me yeah i would say the same um i would say it's a three at least on first watch it's a three actually i'll be honest with you if on first watch up until you really kind of get an idea of what's going on i would put it at a low three okay uh but that's not to be that's not to say that there wasn't good stuff you know going through it but like I, like I was saying before I was I was trying to figure out like what the point of any of, any of this actually was yeah other yeah. than to just kind of set up stuff that's going to come later yeah. um but yeah once you see everything and you kind of look think about it a little bit yeah I would say it's I'd say it's a 3 I I would say it it could be higher if you're really trying to get into like deep cut episodes yeah you know like this isn't yep. one I would lead with uh, but if people watch like the first, the 10 best or whatever to really get them into it and they wanted to dive a little deeper, I'd say, yeah, you should watch this one. It'll give you some good character insights and stuff like that. Coming off the marquee, it's yet another episode that is almost deliberately moving away from sci-fi stuff. You yes. know, it's, it's the show is, the show is really honing in on the fact that their sci-fi stories were terrible at this, to start off. And they are, 
they're realizing that they have to stay with the characters that they've built to this point and that the sci-fi plotting doesn't seem to work in this setting as much. Um, so that's the other takeaway from it is that it's it's really un-TNG. Like this is this is an episode that having two stars of TNG having this interaction with each other would really not make a lot of sense. It wouldn't fit well with the ethos of that show. Um, yeah, but I it, think it it's... does here. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think it's tough. It would be tough to do this with TNG just because, you know, as I said before, everything has to kind of reset at the end or le- or end on a more unresolved note. Yeah. Um, and those characters are all pretty much open books because they are coming from the same system, basically. Like, they're all from the same background, which is Starfleet or whatever. Yeah. And- you know, honestly... If you wanted to really get into it, you could probably do an episode like this with Guinan. Yeah. You know, because what... She's a mystery. Yeah, nobody knows anything about her. Who knows what she's done or has had to do up to this, you know, to get where she is. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean she's always been like this zen-like saint person in her entire life. You know, could because yeah. she could have done some really awful shit. You never know. <laughs> I don't think she has a first name, so I couldn't have made up a story where she actually does something. Uh, in they the never zone, so. usually with a character like that, they give you bits and pieces too, where it's like they'll be talking and she'll impart some sort of wisdom that starts with, "Well, back when I was a gun runner on uh, yeah, Duc- right. Ducant yep. Four or something like that." Um, <laughs> like they they do a really good job with that in Buffy the Vampire Slayer with the character of Giles, where every now and he- then they'll drop in stuff about the fact that he used to be this like badass. He was occultist. up to something. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. He, he, uh, his anybody that knows him from when he was younger calls him Ripper, which, <laughs> in contrast to the character he plays on the sh- like now in the present on the show, you just go, "Whoa, what?" Yeah. <laughs> and every now and then, every now and then, a little bit of Ripper comes out, and it's it's actually pretty great the way they handle it. That's a great it's kind show. Of very much a um, a history of violence, the Viggo Mortensen type thing, right? Where yeah. Just, if, some guy slinging coffee until you need to stab a guy in the face with a fork or whatever. Yeah, it's history of violence if he didn't if he was totally in totally remembered everything that he was doing, yeah. Oh wait, sure. he does remember what he's doing in that movie, doesn't he? He just lies about it the whole movie. He does. He's just a very good yeah. liar. Yeah. Oh, that movie's great. I gotta watch that again. Uh right, so guys, that's it. We're both giving it a three. Uh, but we'll see how things change. I, I like the episode. I just think it's a it's a tough watch, uh, to sort of stand alone on its own. Anyway, if you want to support the show, you can go to social media. The Facebook and Twitter links will be in the description. You can go to patreon.com slash the Penske file. That's the best way to support the show. A couple dollars a month, you get extra podcasts and uh, the ability to vote on topics. You can leave your feedback, which we'll read on the show. And then Discord is the last one. Uh, If you go to Discord, it's like a little Skype light. Not Skype light. It's probably better than Skype. But it's a Skype sort of thing where there's a chat room. Uh, We talk about the episodes. We talk about Star Trek. We talk about the Avengers, <laughs> talk about all the things that drive Clay away. Well, and, now uh, I've seen it. I can go back and I can look, but that was like a, a week ago, so I have to comb through a week. So- <laughs> <sighs> yeah, Discord's about staying up uh, up on, up on to date, I guess, with it, because I even may, if, if too much has passed, I'm like, I'm not going to go back and read that. I'll just jump in here and say something uninformed. Um, let's see. I think that's it. Discord, Patreon, all the social media links. Clay, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think my non sequitur is going to be quick. It's the... Um, I have not seen a music video as good as Childish Gambino's This Is America in a very long time. That was very good. Yeah. I I, I tweeted about it. I haven't seen a... I I think the song is okay, but the song with the video is like a whole nother level. Yeah. I 
I'm constantly amazed that they still make music videos. Like I know, yeah, I guess, they only I guess, exist uh, on YouTube. <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I guess it makes actually makes more sense now than it used to. There was a period like I don't know, maybe five years ago, where it just seemed like there was no point in doing it at all. But yeah. now that the, I think back when they back in that gray area before digital streaming really just murdered music, the music industry, there was still. It didn't seem like videos mattered anymore because there was all these other things that were happening. But now that they basically uh, um, they don't have any other options uh, really for for getting your stuff out there the way that yep. videos. I, I should say not that they don't have options, but streaming video is such a easy thing to do now that yep. it makes perfect sense that you would do music videos, you know, as much as you did back in the in the 90s. And a, a shocking, maybe not shocking, but a huge proportion of YouTube total views are just people listening to music on oh, it. Oh yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, as great as like Spotify is or something, if I want to listen to an album and not have uh, I know what my non sequitur is going to be. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but if I want to listen to an album of music without interruptions or stuff, you can do that on YouTube all day pretty yep. much. Yep. Um, but yeah, that I loved his last album, um, and I didn't really like his. I was never really a fan of his when he was doing more straight hip hop. But the two songs that I've heard from this upcoming thing, it seems like he's really managed to blend the two styles he was playing with really well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's really impressive. Yeah, it's good. I, I'll just I'll I'll just wrap it up with. I think that YouTube like making music videos actually now feels like it has more of a positive angle than back in almost even the heyday of MTV. Maybe that's going back too far, but like what what you've realized now is that you're not competing to get your video aired on MTV, really. You're right. just making it and your fans will watch it and potentially it could go viral at some point. So you're not in this, you know, I remember watching MTV and you'd watch it after school or whatever, and it would just be the same 10, 15 videos, yeah. like endlessly on a loop. So you needed to crack into those videos, that that loop that they were playing. And you don't really need to do that anymore. You just need to put it on YouTube. You get a ton of views, make some money off of it, and you know, spread the brand or whatever. Well, honestly, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, the, 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 the biggest change, I think, in the last 15 years as far as music videos go is they used to just be straight up ads. You know, they were just ads. So you yeah. be the musician doing something stupid, lip syncing their song, and they were just pumped out, pumped out, pumped out, pumped out. And now you have to kind of be a little more clever if you want to, uh, if you want people to watch it. Yep. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that, I mean, MTV apparently doesn't care, but uh, I'm surprised no one has stepped in and and created sort of like a. Uh, uh, curated, curated music video streaming channel. I mean the the v, the sort of like VH17. Like once you start getting those cable packages that have like all like twenty VH1 channels, you start mm -hmm. to run into those kind of channels that are just not popular, I guess. Well, I, which I is mean, I, I'm the best channel I ever watched in my whole life was VH1 Classic. They had the best yep. shit ever. But I, I'm talking yep. like take the the modern the modern streaming idea. And the idea that people are watching webisodes and 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 uh, uh, just all sorts of different content and apply that to music videos. So you're oh, are actually... you thinking like a Pandora for video? 
basically. Yeah, I'm thi- well, I'm thinking like a cu- like a curated collection. So it's basically like the best of the best videos, right? Oh, I see, I see. I see. So you've got all of these really interesting uh, videos that people either are either talking about or think that there is some sort of artistic merit to all in one place, which doing that in and of itself instantly makes them more important, even if they're not. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess my thought is basically that I'm surprised MTV or someone like MTV has not taken a step into what seems to be a really open field as far as the potential of uh, music videos on the Internet is. Hmm. Interesting. Do um, we're running long. Do you want to save your non sequitur for the next episode or does it tie into this? It ties in a little bit. I'll be quick. So right, I, I, I don't I, I sign up for the, the Spotify premium only when there's like, uh, you know, one of those things where it's like 10 bucks for three months or something because I'm a cheap bastard. Sure. Um, and so I recently just canceled my subscription and I feel like they were trolling me pretty hard because as soon as I canceled, all the ads that I started getting were just erectile dysfunction and hair loss ads yep. and, or ads for the uh, keyboard player from Journey's book about God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, you're really making a good case for me to sign back up to this thing. <laughs> <laughs> this limp dick motherfucker over here. We got we to gotta get him back. That, it's hostile targeted ag- advertising, I think, is where the big money oh, is in the future. It's targeted <laughs> advertising in, in general just drives me nuts because it's like there's so many things. There's so many things that require ads, and there are apparently not enough ads to go around. So if you yep. watch anything that has ads in it, you're seeing the same commercial like 15 times. So I was, any, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say. So anytime I like to catch up on the the CW DC comic shows, like in in chunks, and on the CW app, it's like the same four commercials for every single show. So yep. it's really made it's really made sure that I'm never gonna buy any of the products they're trying to sell me. I got. I signed up for. I watch a lot of YouTube, and I just signed up for the not just, but I I signed up a little while ago for YouTube Red, which is oh, basically yeah. you pay ten dollars, you get no ads, and you get. Uh, it's basically their Spotify service, and you can watch their standalone content and things like that. There's a whole bunch I, of perks to getting it. I would do it just to watch that Karate Kid show. That looks pretty funny. <laughs> well, the the thing is, I don't use it for any of the perks except for the ad thing. And before I got it, I was like, ah, YouTube ads are kind of annoying, but whatever, I can do it. Now, whenever I log into like Amy's computer and use it, and she doesn't have YouTube Red, so I go to her. It just logs into her account. It's like, why are there so many ads? What is yeah. happening? I just, I need this to stop. It's, it's, it's really remarkable how quickly it changed me from like I can't stand YouTube with ads at this point. I'll gladly pay ten dollars a month to not have any. Yeah, remember when YouTube didn't have any ads? Yes, back in whenever two thousand five or whenever it oh, actually days. came out. We there were the same three cat videos that you could watch endlessly. Yeah. That's all there were. <laughs> Um, if someone had made a curated list of the best cat videos, I would probably watch that. There was some good shit on there in the early days, like back before people realized what was going on. You could yep. find some like deep cut, especially music. So I mean, everybody apparently you can find live concerts for everybody who's ever played anywhere now on YouTube, and nobody yeah. cares. But there yep. was like music videos and stuff that you haven't seen in years. That I don't. Some of them I think have been taken off because of copyright stuff. So you could you could find some good stuff in the early days. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. As always, the Captain Tier patrons on Patreon get a shout-out. Vincent Adolman, Stephen Cobb, Russ Graham, Eric Johnson, Nathan Elliott, Ewan Tibbetts, uh, Decker Sebastiani, Neil Brennan, Carrie Mobility, Doug Valcamp, Michael Pond, Bradley Killens, Rune Venler, Jace Stanley, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Ben Douglas, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, Tark Latif. Guys, thank you very much for supporting the show. Clay, thanks very much, and you'll be back with uh, the Crossover in a couple Hell of yeah. days. Hell yeah. All right, so thank you very much, guys. We will see you next time.